0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Helen Epstein, is an acclaimed writer of memoir, journalism, and biography. In her career as a journalist, she interviewed such legendary musicians as Vladimir Horowitz, Leonard Bernstein, and Yo-Yo Ma. She's the author of three books about the transmission of intergenerational trauma. The first, Children of the Holocaust, Conversations with Sons and Daughters of Survivors, was originally published in 1979, the second, Where She Came From, A Daughter's Search for Her Mother's History in 1999, and the third, The Long half lives of Love and Trauma in 2018. All three books were named New York Times Notable Books of the Year and represent a 40-year process of self-discovery. Today's interview will focus mostly on her first book, Children of the Holocaust. So Helen, welcome to Delving In.
1: Thank you, thank you.
0: So before we delve into the book, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now.
1: Well, like all of us, this is now the 3rd February. It started here, I live in Boston, and it started here in Boston in February of 2020. So now we're in 2022. So I've been dealing with that, but on top of that, shortly after COVID broke out in Boston, I was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. And I had the full whammy of treatment. I had surgery and then chemotherapy and then radiation and then recovery. And in the in the middle of it, I had a stroke.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness!
1: So I'm I'm like a, a champion swimmer. I feel like I've come out on the other end of it. It's funny I say champion swimmer because of course my father was a champion swimmer, but that is one of the things I think we can talk about, how our parents, particularly those of us who have parents who survived very, very difficult circumstances, can serve as an inspiration to us in very different circumstances.
0: Gosh, we hear the expression pain tolerance, but there ought to be an expression fear tolerance. As well, I mean, it's amazing to, yes. to go through yes. that, you know, to have the double fear—the fear of of cancer and then the fear of being in a hospital where you could catch COVID and and all that while you're undergoing cancer treatment.
1: Right, right, and that doesn't stop. I mean, I I was I was in the hospital two days ago to get one of my follow up CAT scans, and once again, you know, I got into the machine, and there was the nurse, and there was the technician, and I all I could think about was the air in the room.
0: Right. <laughs> incredible and of course so you, you can only imagine which i'm sure you've done a million times what kind of fear your parents went through in the camps right the kind of sustained fear that's supposed to be really damaging to health uh both right. physical and psychological and you know, how do you, how does how right. does a person withstand that it's at some point it has to be kind of cut off from from one's awareness
1: i think the trick that I learned from my parents was uh, dissociation. That you simply uh, choose to put your attention somewhere else and you don't think about the reality of your situation. You don't dwell in the reality. You try and put your attention and your eyes and your ears elsewhere. And I'm extremely good at that. And I think it was very helpful to me during the whole cancer experience.
0: Right, so I imagine it's maybe starts out not as a choice but as something that, that the body or the unconscious mind does for the person. But then if you can learn what you've done by dissociating, it can become a tool. You can actually use it, use it deliberately.
1: I think in the case of kids, of adult children of Holocaust survivors, I think <laughs> that learning uh, these survival skills for many of us came extremely early and that it wasn't a conscious process. I think that if I look back at my own life, I think I learned to do this very, very early. And I learned to do it because my mother uh, was one of the Holocaust survivors who talked quite a bit She herself had been in psychotherapy. She had been in psychoanalysis in the 1950s.
0: Which is unusual, right, for survivors?
1: Which is extremely unusual. And the reason she was in analysis was she basically had a nervous breakdown. My mother was a very strong woman, but on the other hand, she had an awful lot to deal with in her post war life. She was an immigrant. They were in New York, they had absolutely no money. They left Czechoslovakia in 1948 with three suitcases. And my father was totally, totally incapable of functioning in New York. He did not speak any English at all. He was 44 years old and he was a former water polo player. <laughs> so, the only place that they played water polo in New York then was the New York Athletic Club, which was on Central Park South and it was restricted to Jews. They didn't let Jews in as members, let alone as players. So um, he had this idea that he would get a job as a water polo coach, and of course that was out of the question. And there was absolutely nothing else he could do. So my mother was stuck with having to support the family, run the house, raise the kids, and um, it was really a lot for her. And I think it was 55, she had a bit of a breakdown. She also was very physically handicapped by the camps. During a bombing in Hamburg, where she was in a slave labor camp, a roof had fallen on her back. And so she always had back problems. Plus, she always had stomach problems. Plus, she always had migraines. Plus, she was depressive to start with. So she was a very, very complicated, difficult mother, very good in some ways, and very difficult and challenging in other ways. But at any rate, I think that the way I developed my dissociative skills was by living with her because she would tell me things that were way too much for a small child to assimilate. And so I developed this very unusual, I think, way of processing information. I would listen to her and I would look as though I was totally attentive, but I wouldn't let it really in. I'll give you an example. Let me give you just one, one example, which makes this very clear. My mother had an Auschwitz tattoo on her left arm. Small, blue, discreet. For many years, and I'm talking about decades, I would not remember that number. It was one letter, four numbers, would not remember it.
0: So that's that's what you really call tuning out.
1: <laughs> right. It's extreme tuning out. And it's, it's such an interesting, I find it such an interesting combination of things. Because on the one hand, I wanted to be polite to my mother. I wanted to be sympathetic to my mother. I loved my mother. So I wanted to listen to her. So I pretended I was listening to her. I looked like I was listening to her. But I basically didn't take anything in.
0: And is that at all? Or or was some of it being stored away and then, you know, kind of festering for a long time?
1: I think, of course, much of it did get in. When I first wrote Children of the Holocaust back in nineteen, I don't know, nineteen mid-1970s, I thought of myself as having an iron box. And the iron box didn't was not one of these images that you dream up in English class. I really I really felt that I was carrying an iron box around in myself. And I thought over the years, I thought, well, where did that come from? And one of the things I thought about was that I was raised in the 1950s at a time when people were very, very, very concerned with nuclear reactors and um, nuclear bombs. And I think that I had some idea of making a lead lined box that would contain an, an enormous explosion. And so that was one idea. And then of course there was the idea of a treasure chest and a sunken ship and that all of this stuff was down there and it had to come up at some point. And also that it was, it was something that needed to be stored away. It couldn't see the light. It had to be put in a box. It couldn't be let free.
0: I mean, it's interesting that you you also use the term treasure chest because there's something about the experiences that were in that box that were both horrifying, terrifying, but also very rich with meaning, with right. meaning and it and it really right. uh, became the fuel for so much of your writing and thinking and processing
1: right, right.
0: Yeah, it's right. so interesting.
1: And it's it's funny because I you know I wasn't the kind of child that teachers thought would be a writer. I was not a daydreamer. I w- I I, w- I did not like making up stories at all. I didn't seem to have any imagination <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> um I didn't have imaginary friends. I didn't um I hated ghost stories. They scared me. I didn't like ghost stories. So in my elementary school, I remember very clearly what kind of child I was because my elementary school class was quite tight and we we kept in touch. And I certainly wasn't a creative writing kind of person. I was, I was more of a leader. I was very musical. I, I, I led the class whenever we sang. I was always chosen to be Eliza in My Fair <laughs> Lady. You know, I, I, was, I was very active. I wasn't your typical writer persona at all.
0: So how did it get started then, the, the writing?
1: I think my writing got started because I felt that there were things I needed to say that I couldn't say out loud, particularly to my mother. <laughs> So I think I actually started writing in two ways. I started I started writing letters to my mother because my mother was suicidal in addition to all of her other stuff. And she would lock herself up in the bathroom, which was the only room in our apartment that had a lock. And everybody would just kind of scatter. You know, I had a little brother who wanted nothing to do with any of this stuff. I had a father who felt incapable of dealing with my mother when she was this way. And so I was the person who wound up sort of loitering outside the bathroom door. And what I started doing was slipping notes under the door to her. And it's funny because I hadn't really pinpointed it exactly until this minute, but that is one of the sources of my writing. The second source of my writing is when, of course, like many of us, we were sent to summer camp and we were told to write twice a week in the afternoons after lunch. And so I think that I got into the group idea of writing as communication in summer camp, which was when I was seven or so. But before that, I was already slipping these notes to my mother, which were, of course, tremendously emotional, fraught notes so that writing for me became connected with something urgent and immediate and necessary.
0: Well, you took on a tremendous responsibility you know for keeping your mother going and making sure she was okay behind that bathroom door. It must have been so so frightening for a child,
1: yeah, it was. And I, of course, had no idea when you're a kid, you have no idea what goes on in other people's homes. And you know, since that time, of course, when you're an adult and you read all of these memoirs of what goes on in other people's homes, it was difficult, but it was psychologically difficult more than difficult in the physically abusive ways that you read about in so many people's memoirs.
0: I think people think that people who survived the Holocaust must be incredibly strong and resilient. And your mother must have been in some sense that, but she also was extremely vulnerable and fragile all at the same time. And and some of that fragility even preceded the camps from what I've read. I mean, it was mental illness in the family and so on.
1: Right. I think particularly in the United States, we tend to see things in black and white. And survivors were seen as victims in the 50s. And then in the 70s, they started being seen as saints and martyrs and heroes. And neither one is correct. All of these people were people. <laughs> All of these survivors were were ordinary people from many different backgrounds many different um, professions many different kinds of religious faith and you can't really generalize about any of them and i think the strands of strength and weakness in them are extremely complicated and are very different from each for each one you know my parents were extremely different personalities my father was pretty much the opposite of my mother. He was extremely healthy. He loved uh, sports and health. And um, he was extremely physically disciplined. He got up every morning at six o'clock in the morning and took a cold shower every morning. And no matter what, rain or shine. And um, he thought that was the best way to live. And and uh, I remember when, when his doctor told him he should stop smoking because it was bad for his health and that they had the data for it now. And he just went to the nearest wastebasket, threw out his cigarettes and never smoked again. I mean, so they're very different people. And luckily my father was extremely optimistic and not depressive. So I had both kind of parenting.
0: Yeah. So in his case, he, he I guess, was not prone to rumination and he was able no. to sort of section it off. And I, I mean, I, I don't claim to understand how these things work, even though I'm a psychologist, but uh, he was somehow able to put it out of his mind and move forward. Right. Whereas your mom, it sounds like she was just tormented.
1: Right. And my father, the other interesting part in our family, which is true of many families and really isn't talked a lot about among psychologists, and I really think it should be talked about more because it's true of all immigrant groups, is the role of language in child rearing when you are in an immigrant family. Because what happened in my family, my, my mother was multilingual. She spoke four languages fluently. She was very highly educated. My father spoke only Czech. And he was 44 years old when he came here, and he found it almost impossible to learn English beyond a rudimentary level. So basically, until I was 10 years old, I spoke Czech with my father, which was fine because you know I had a great vocabulary. You can speak when you know until you're 10 years old about almost anything, right? And um, but after 10, when I started moving into a sophisticated vocabulary, particularly in high school. My father and I could no longer really have great conversations because he didn't have the English and I didn't have the Czech. And I think that break, which is pretty tragic between parents and children in families where there's a language barrier is huge. I'm sure it's true in your area with um, Spanish speaking um, parents and English speaking um, children. And it's true, you know, for so many different populations. I mean, here in Massachusetts, we have Cambodians, and we have Laotians and we have all kinds of Latino uh, populations. And I think this this paradigm gets repeated in all of these families.
0: I think it will be helpful to hear a little bit of historical background starting with Prague, the city of your birth, which I understand before World War II had a thriving Jewish community, uh, well integrated into the cultural life of the city and making up about a third of its population.
1: There aren't very many Czech Jews there never were very many Czech Jews. It's nothing like the huge Russian Jewish community or the Polish Jewish right. community or even some of the Middle Eastern communities, you know, the Iranian Jewish community or the, the Iraqi Jewish community. It was very, very small population. And the reason it was a small population is that it was kept artificially low over the centuries. There was a quota system for Jews. And basically only the eldest son could inherit the property. Everybody else was illegal basically and so a lot of the younger siblings of czech jews wound up going to hungary or 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 to poland so my family on both sides are czech jews going back centuries which is which is pretty unusual there were four major settlements of jews in bohemia over the centuries outside of prague And my mother's family came from one of them, and my father's family came from the other one of them. And there are actually graves in these two towns. The towns are called Rodnice and Kolin. And there are graves in these two towns of my family that go back several centuries, and they are documented. Uh, several centuries back, which is kind of astonishing. I never knew this until I started writing my second book, which was where she came from. And I dug into the genealogical aspect of my family history until my mother died. I really didn't know very much about the pre-war history. But anyways, so my parents both came from these established old Jewish families. Old Jewish families in the bohemian context does not mean religious. So it's, it's not like I came from Hasidic families. The fact that I came from old families only means that they were in the place for a long time. But they had not been super religious for at least a century and a half my father's family belonged to a reform synagogue in this small town on the Elbe, and my mother's family had really drifted away from observant judaism by pretty much the 1880s and they were very assimilated to bohemian czech culture you know czechoslovakia itself didn't become a nation until 1918 it was the province of bohemia in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and people spoke Czech.
0: Yes, just for our listeners, the Reform Jewish movement started in 19th century Germany, so it's a relatively recent phenomenon. And my understanding, maybe I'm wrong about this, I I thought that uh, many of the Jews of Prague were also German-speaking, and were kind of really steeped steeped in German culture.
1: Yes. But remember, my parents didn't come from Prague originally, their families. Uh Their families were from the countryside. So the situation in the Austro Hungarian Empire in general was that in the cities, people spoke German, and almost everybody educated knew German, just like today, everybody educated pretty much knows English. But in the countryside, everybody spoke the national language, which in Bohemia was Czech and in Hungary was Hungarian. So my father, for example, who grew up in the 20th century, in the in the very first two decades of the 20th century, he grew up at a time of tremendous Czech nationalism. And so he never learned German because he thought it was You know, he thought it was the language of the colonialists, you know, so he never learned it, which was very bad for him because it did not help him in the war. Whereas my mother, who did grow up in Prague, my mother's mother moved to Prague in 1900. So my mother, who was born in 1920, was already born in Prague. My mother was a real city girl and she spoke German, Czech, English and French. Really well. So, my father was actually born into the Austro Hungarian Empire. He was born in 1904, and Czechoslovakia became a state in 1918. So, that was my father. My mother was born in 1920. So, she had only known Czechoslovakia as a state. So, they were different generations, and they had very different historical orientations to the world, I'd say.
0: After the war, they met?
1: They met on the street. (laughs) They met on the street. My father uh, had been a swimmer and a water polo player all of his life.
0: Olympic level, yes?
1: Yes. He played in two Olympic games. The first was in Amsterdam in 1928, and the second was in Berlin in 1936. And this was not a totally extraordinary thing to do for a Jew in Central Europe. There were many Jews who participated in the Olympics in very many different sports. And I've actually written a little book about this. It's called uh, A Jewish Athlete Swimming Against Stereotype. And um, he grew up in this town that was on a river, and he used to swim in the river from the time he was about eight years old. And he became a national champion, and he was not only in these two Olympics, but that's what he did during his life in in Prague in his pre-war life and even in his post-war life. He swam and he coached swimmers. That's what he did. That was his job.
0: well, to get to an Olympic level, you, you have to be pretty single minded about your sport, I think
1: right, right. So one of the things he did in the 1920s was he coached um kids who swam at this swim club outside of prague and one of those kids was my mother because at the time she was 13 and he was 29 of course he didn't pay any attention to her you know she was another kid and um after the war when they both returned from the camps they were both totally alone. They had both lost their entire families. And anyone, any familiar face was a major big deal. And so they recognized each other on the street. She recognized her former swim coach, and he recognized her vaguely as somebody who used to swim.
0: And and they had lost their property as well, which I think was a pretty typical experience for survivors. That. Any Any property they
1: Correct. they had lost everything.
0: Any property that they had before the war got confiscated and then given to or I don't know given or sold to non- jews who uh, then kept it
1: right. They met on the street. It was nineteen forty six they had it was spring, and um my father, who was not very slick, said to my mother. I haven't seen you at the swimming pool. Why don't you come to the swimming pool? And so she came, and that the rest is history.
0: Yeah, l- l- let's get back to you, to your experience as as a child of uh, Holocaust survivors. In your own process, uh, the first phase, if if I can call it that, was the conversation stopper. You know, people would ask you about your background, and you would just sort of blurt out that your parents were in the camps, and then and then and then they Friend, let's say if this was in high school, let's say would just know don't, would not know what to say next,
1: right? But you know, it was even earlier than that because you know we we just had one of these fiftieth anniversary reunions of our elementary school class, and all of the kids in my class told me that they had been coached by their parents not to stare at my mother's number, not to ask any questions about my mother's number. And they were told that whatever variant of the story they were told, they were told this was not to be talked about in our house. And it was just astonishing to me, you know, for us all to be now much older than our parents had been then and hearing what they had been prepped to do or not to do. So I was extremely aware of this. Also, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan where there were many, many, many people with numbers on their arms. So I did not think that my parents were unusual. It wasn't like growing up, say, where you are. If, if you were a Holocaust survivor in Las Cruces in, in um, 1950 and had a number on your arm, it probably would have been an extraordinary thing to see. But in Manhattan, it was not a big deal.
0: Right. I grew up in Queens and there were members of my synagogue who had numbers. And I I think there was a kind of an unspoken rule that don't ask, you know, don't ask. It's taboo. And I think one of the things that you've done is you've broken through taboos. And if you don't mind, I want to read a, a little paragraph from a review from The Tablet, which is a Jewish online magazine from June 26, 2018. And it goes like this. It should be remembered that in 1979, when Children of the Holocaust first appeared, attributing anything seemingly negative to the dead or to the survivors was considered sacrilegious. Children of the Holocaust was groundbreaking because it defied an oppressive communal silence. Epstein openly discussed abuse and violence, dysfunctional family relationships. Her book was a breath of reality, a gift to children of survivors who had been unfairly burdened by silence and idealization of that generation, which suffered such horrors.
1: I think that's pretty pretty accurate.
0: <laughs> so it's really uh, really a, an amazing thing that you've that you've done all, all these years. Of course, was over forty years ago now that uh, the right. book was published. Right. And uh, and writing subsequent books uh, in, in that review, it also talks about your subsequent books each each twenty years after the previous one. <laughs> so it's been a long <laughs> process. My goodness.
1: Right. Yeah. It's been a very long process. I think each of the books in the trilogy are almost like a building block. What I discovered after many years of Children of the Holocaust and after both of my parents died, because both of my parents died relatively early. My mother was 69 when she died. My father was 71 when he died. So I was a, I was a young person without parents and certainly no other family. So one of the things I became very aware of was how much of the family tissue The Holocaust had destroyed, and I decided after my mother died that I wanted to try and build a bridge that went from way before the Holocaust, over the Holocaust, to now, and that was the reason for this book called "Where She Came From," which looks at about 150 years of Central European Jewish history, focusing on the women in my family, and that was really a historical book. I did a tremendous amount of research, and. I really, really liked it because I was working in post velvet revolution, Czechoslovakia. And it was a time of enormous goodwill to foreigners because you know they hadn't been run over by tourists yet as they are now in Prague. And so I, lots and lots of people helped me and it was a really great work of reconstructing the past for me and really creating my own grandmother and great grandmother for myself.
0: So if you had previously, your family had been cut off by the at the roots in a sense. You were kind of re- reclaiming the the roots. You know, finding find, they hadn't the roots hadn't been totally destroyed. It was possible to re, re, uh, reconstruct it.
1: Yeah, yeah, barely. And the other thing, of course, you know, we we always forget because it's been long now. But we were cut off from. Central and Eastern Europe because of the Soviet Union and because of communism. And you couldn't go there, you know, and if you went there, you could certainly couldn't walk around freely like the way I did, you know, and wandered through the villages where my great grandfather might have been a peddler, you know. I mean, this was just impossible to do. So after 1989, you could do that. And I'm sure you know there there have been a tremendous number of books that have followed that, you know, the lost um, uh, Daniel Mendelssohn's book um, is one of the ones that come to mind but there have been many, many books now of of kind of genealogical tourism where people go back and reconstruct um.
0: I forget to say a word about the kind of the Jewish experience I mean there, there have been debates about how un- unique the Holocaust was and, and I, I, I guess my position is that historically speaking there's a uniqueness to it but on the other hand suffering is suffering and you know when we think about other traumas historical traumas whether it's african-american slavery or the genocide and ethnocide of native americans or the japanese survivors of the atomic bomb you know that i'm sure the things that you've written about are highly highly relevant to those situations too What, what may be somewhat unique about the the jewish holocaust is that the survivors are from a people that really value language and and history and writing so there's been so much written and and movies and and so on, which is not meant to say that somehow it's the worst. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But but there there was a kind of a, a long history of processing history, and 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 seeing the value in it.
1: That's a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I think that I think that that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is that um, survivors of the Holocaust wound up in environments where they were able to speak. And I'm using that in the widest possible sense. I mean, you're a psychologist. So imagine, for example, behind the Iron Curtain, nobody really wrote about the Holocaust at all until much later. Whereas in in France, in in Germany, in the United States, there was, even though it seemed as though there was this huge silence around the Holocaust, the fact is that survivors did write memoirs and that academics did write books. And they did so immediately, right after the war from 1946 on. You need lots and lots of things for a history to come into being you need people who are willing to talk but you also need people who are willing to listen and you also need people who are willing to support the effort and all of that they found in the United States here where I live in Massachusetts we have a lot of Cambodians and the Cambodians I think culturally because they have a culture that does not privilege the individual and and because they are they're such a foreign body in the United States of you know the last 20 years they don't have the kind of opportunity to write their history in the way that Jews did in the 1940s and 50s in places like New York they just they just don't have the critical mass of people, they don't have the support, they don't have the language. I mean, the other thing that's that's kind of interesting is that because Jews were so multilingual, you know, my mother as an example, she spoke she spoke English long before she ever came to New York City, they were able to hit the ground writing. <laughs> You know, and they were, they were able, you know, somebody like Elie Wiesel, who spoke French, could go to France. And even though his first works were translated into French from Yiddish, he could speak French, he always could speak French. And that's a huge advantage in terms of writing yourself into history.
0: Of course, the, the big anomaly in, in what you're talking about is the uh, Israeli experience, the Holocaust survivors who went to Israel, which was a huge influx, hundreds of thousands, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And because of the uh, the, the need of early Israelis to be tough and to uh, be strong, that, that there was an intolerance of the what they used to call the diaspora mentality, which they associated with weakness. And so they didn't want to hear about the Holocaust.
1: Absolutely
0: which is so unexpected. I mean, it's really unexpected to read about. I can only imagine what it was like.
1: I have a couple of couple of things come to mind. I've just been um, in a book group and we've been reading a, a novel by Eli Amir, who's an Iraqi Jew who published his first book, which is called Scapegoat, about an Iraqi Jewish teenager who comes to Israel and is in a ma'abara, in a um, temporary mm-hmm. camp, which of course those temporary camps became very, very long. You know, like twenty-year-long camps. But at any rate, it's fascinating because, of course, the attitude towards Iraqi Jews was very much the same as the attitude towards Polish Jews or or German Jews. You know that they were something that needed to be erased and assimilated and uh, made over into a new model.
0: It sounds so un Jewish, you know, forget your past. Be an Israeli, forget your past. <laughs> you
1: know? Right, right, right. It's very strange. And it was true. I I came to Israel for the first time in 1964. I spent quite a bit of time in Israel. I was on a kibbutz in 64 and 66. And then I was at university in Jerusalem between 67 and 70. And I loved many, many things about Israel, and I loved speaking Hebrew. But what I didn't love was the sense of being stigmatized as a, a Holocaust-related person. I thought it was ridiculous the way they treated Holocaust survivors. And it was true everywhere I went, on the kibbutz where I was. I actually worked in the chicken house with a survivor with a number on his arm. And I could hear the way people talked about him and the way they treated him. And I really resented it. And I think it's one of the reasons that I didn't feel at home in Israel.
0: I also wanted to, to ask you um, about the kind of psychological aspects of being the child of, of survivors and the primacy of the parents needs that what they went through was so enormous that as a child as a sensitive child obviously you had to put their needs first which is kind of the opposite of what psychologists tell you to do about, with your children you know, put them first
1: <laughs> absolutely i think that certainly you know when you're a child particularly back in the 50s, before the internet, before children's television, you know, like Sesame Street and all of these things that sort of show you what childhood is like globally or try to show you what childhood is like globally. I think people were very much um, in the world of their own households and didn't really know what was going on in other households. I mean, I know in these reunions that we have we talk about with with my elementary school friends that we did visit each other after school and we knew what went on at lunchtime and we knew what went on immediately after school you know in those hours between 3 and 5:30 before you had to go home and have dinner but we really don't know what happened after that we have no idea we ha- we never saw the fathers the fathers were never around we sometimes saw mothers who were housewives, but we really didn't see family dynamics. So there was no way of knowing whether what was going on in your household was normal or not when you were a kid. And even in high school, I went to a high school where we really didn't didn't see each other's families in action. I really never saw anybody's family in action. So there was no comparison. But yes, parent parental needs ruled our household completely. And also remember, my father was born in 1904. He had a very Victorian idea of what parents did and what children did. And he decided what time dinner was. And everybody had to be at the dinner table at six o'clock. Everybody had to eat without fussing about the food. Everybody had to not talk while they were eating because you don't uh, interfere with nourishing yourself by talking and it was it was very very authoritarian and my mother's needs were that she had to be taken care of emotionally and i didn't really get it you know i didn't really get that this was not the normal way of um, certainly american child rearing until i was I was having children myself
0: yeah i think there are plenty of families that still function that way but less so among educated families and i think what's unusual there is that this wasn't educated especially your mother extremely educated uh, and and yet there was a a lack of understanding of of child development but i think that was typical in that in that era kind of across the board in most most families i would think but you have the complication though of of this legacy of the the uh, holocaust and uh, being in the camps and Knowing that your mom was fragile and locking herself in the bathroom, and you don't know what she's doing in there, and and then you also talk about the uh, the need to to seek out suffering and to try to understand what they went through. I mean, this is really incredible.
1: I think the best way to understand that pattern is, I know psychologists always say that you're drawn to people who remind you of people you know and people you love and who are the people you love your parents so for a very long time the kind of template that i had for friendship was people like my mother <laughs> you know i was drawn <laughs> i was drawn to people who were depressed i was drawn to people who needed cheering up Um, They were very, very smart people, very sensitive people, very talented people. My mother was extremely gifted. She was a a dress designer. And she had a lot to offer intellectually and culturally. So I was drawn to people like that. But I was also drawn to people who really needed help. And that took a lot of psychotherapy for me to recognize and then to remedy.
0: So that you wouldn't uh, keep disappearing. Right, right so to speak in, in in relationships so you might say that you were seeking out lovable angst
1: yes yes i think i was seeking out situations where i could be a caretaker and you know being a caretaker is is a multifaceted thing i mean it's not all bad it's you get a tremendous sense of importance from being a caretaker you are the only person who can get your mother out of the bathroom right I mean, nobody else seems to be able to do anything. Um, And with my notes and with my talking to her, she finally did come out. And she never did kill herself, which was great. You know, that was a huge victory. So there are points to be gotten in in being that kind of responsible child. You know, I have two brothers, by the way, and they did none of this stuff. (laughs) And they have very different psychologies, So I have two brothers, and they're very much more like my father. They're both athletes. They work in professions that are non-intellectual. They are both doing sports as we speak. One of my brothers right now is in Switzerland skiing, and the other one is in Florida playing golf and tennis. So I, I wouldn't be caught dead today. Doing any of those things, you know, I'm in my house <laughs> in lockdown, but they they can't live without physical activity, and I think that's what my father was like.
0: And in in your case, you were, I imagine, fulfilling some dreams of your mother, you know, by becoming a writer and and a famous one, uh, no no less, kind of becoming uh, super accomplished. And and I don't know to what extent you you were um, helping your mother vicariously by doing all that.
1: I think she really um, identified with me tremendously. And, you know, what we haven't talked about is is parents and children um, identifying with each other, whether there's Holocaust or genocide or anything else in their family. But, you know, in many families, uh, parents and children look remarkably alike. I look remarkably like my mother. People sometimes mistake us on photographs we look that much alike and she identified very very much with me and she couldn't understand the places where we were different and there are many places we were different I had no interest whatsoever in fashion and she she lived for fashion so it was it was difficult for her to separate from me when it came time to separate she just couldn't see well why would I want to separate from her I mean weren't things perfect the way they were
0: So, there's a kind of idealization of her in a way, and also of the relationship. And it must have taken such a long time to unravel that.
1: Right. Very long, and with a, a lot of help from uh, psychologists.
0: <laughs> you, you write in your book that uh, the psychoanalysts of the 1950s were slow to accept uh, the reality that mass adult trauma could cause permanent psychological and physical damage, that there was a kind of denial. You don't usually hear about the psychoanalysts having the denial. There wasn't a concept of PTSD yet. I mean, that only came with the Vietnam War.
1: Actually, trauma studies really began, I think, in the early 1980s. And until then, it's such an interesting history. In my third book of this trilogy, The Long Half-Lives of Love and Trauma, I get into a little bit about the history of trauma studies itself. I mean, the thing about trauma is that you forget it and you remember it, and you forget it, and you remember it, but the thing that's really weird is that culturally and historically, the whole field of trauma studies gets remembered and then forgotten again, and then remembered. There's a whole literature about trauma around World War One, particularly in the British literature. It's in poetry, it's in novels, and it's in nonfiction and all of that was kind of forgotten until as you say the Vietnam War brought trauma back front and center into the consciousness of Americans it's interesting that the second world war the trauma that the soldiers experienced the 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 soldiers of all the different countries that that participated experienced kind of got overshadowed by the survivors by hitler's victims and the soldiers felt so many i've i've met many so american soldiers who were in the second world war and they all kind of said well how could we how could we make any claim to suffering when we had seen what went on in the camps and they had actually a lot of them had witnessed the camps they had liberated the camps so i often hear that when I was in Czechoslovakia, you know one of I think one of the reasons so many people helped me was I was perceived as one of the rare children of Jews who had survived the Second World War because there are very few Czech Jews who survived. There was something like maybe ten thousand Czech Jews who survived the war. It was ridiculously small
0: number i I was in Prague uh, several years ago, and I saw the synagogue
1: old new synagogue.
0: The one that had all the names oh, of, yes. of the families yeah, yeah. So just uh, just enormously high and uh, walls every wall covered with names of check 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 families not just uh, not just individuals right yeah well i was wondering with the time remaining if you'd like to return to the uh theme from the very beginning of our interview to talk about your experience of as a cancer uh, survivor and how your being a child of holocaust survivors has helped you
1: yeah I'm actually just still still processing it, but I know that from the very beginning when I was diagnosed, I just felt that I had to be super focused and I had to just do what had to be done. And that phrase, do what had to be done, just seemed to be such an inheritance from both my parents. My father had been, in addition to being a water polo player and an Olympic athlete, he was also a lieutenant in the Czech army. And in one of the major ironies of his life, his garrison, his military garrison, was Terezin. And after he was a lieutenant in Terezin, he became a Jewish prisoner in Terezin. And he was also in an official capacity he was made a quartermaster in the in the camp because that's what he had been in the army so he knew how to do it but he always told me you always have to make a decision there is making any decision even a wrong decision is better than hesitating. And that was somehow drilled into me all my life. And the other thing that was drilled into me all my life was you've got to get up in the morning, have a cold shower and um, (laughs) get going. You know, I don't have a cold shower in the morning.
0: But you think of it.
1: (laughs) But I think, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I have to give you a sense of what my of of what this child rearing idea was like. We would have to get up in the morning, certainly by seven. If we did not get out of bed, my father would take a wet washcloth with cold water, stand over us, and threaten to wring it out over our heads if we didn't get up. So we got up, you know.
0: And I, I imagine he mu- he must have done that once or twice for real, right? <laughs>
1: right he did absolutely so so that's that's kind of what I got for the cancer from my father just get up every morning no matter what's going on and get through it from my mother I got a much kind of broader context which was Helen there are many people in the world in worse shape than you are you know cancer is not your thing There are gazillions of people who have cancer, and they're all getting up in the morning and getting through it, and they're working while they have it. And that's what I heard in my mind from my mother. And they were not oppressive voices. They were inspirational voices because I knew that they had survived six years of Nazism. And that whatever was going on with me, it wasn't going to last six years. I I was going to get through this relatively soon. You know, there was an end point. The pandemic was more of a problem. I mean, I knew that the cancer treatment was going to have an end point. I knew that I was going to have surgery, chemo, radio, recovery. But the pandemic seemed to have absolutely no end point and still doesn't have an end point. So that was, in a sense, harder.
0: Of course, in the camps, they didn't know how long it was going to last either. That's
1: right. That's right. And and the, the the major issue that I had, I thought, the only thing that really scares me is pain. I don't want to be in pain. But as long as I'm not in pain, I can pretty much get through every everything. And I did. And the thing about cancer treatment in the 21st century is that there are large parts of the treatment where there is no pain anymore. They've just vanquished pain, you know, because of anesthesia, because of medication. It's just a very, very different um, experience than it was even 20 years ago.
0: Well, my guess is that even if you had pain, you would somehow steal through it. It it sounds like your parents gave you training and courage.
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: So, which is not something we talk about very often, but uh, I think it's uh, certainly can be taught.
1: Yeah, but you know, I don't think they talked about it in terms of courage. I think no,
0: by example though. Yeah,
1: they talked about it by example, and they basically said my parents were extremely democratic people. They were very, very much aware of other cultures, of other continents, of all kinds of classes of people. And they basically said, you know, they were like the opposite of white privilege. You know, when I hear white privilege, I kind of say, oh, give me a break. You know, not, not all white people have have this idea of white privilege. My parents certainly didn't have white privilege. They didn't have white privilege be, because A, they were in concentration camps, and B, because they, they were immigrants and they had very, very difficult lives, especially my poor father who couldn't find a job for 12 years. But the point is that their message to me was never a message of white privilege. It was a message of, listen, life is tough for everybody, and you can do it as well as anybody else. That was the message they gave me.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful place to, to stop. It's a wonderful message for, for all of us. And I, I'm just so inspired uh, meeting you. And, and and I can just sense your your kind of lightheartedness about life, which is so incredible, you know, given what you and your family uh, have have been through. But you've, of course, worked at it. You, you didn't just take anything for granted. And you've uh, really uh, created a very meaningful uh Life work for yourself. So, all the power to you.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Stuart. It's it's really an amazing opportunity to be talking to your community. I mean, it's it is such a twenty first century thing.
0: <laughs> right. You probably weren't expecting to talk to New Mexico.
1: No, and it, it it's great. And and um, I've actually been to New Mexico. I love New Mexico, and I have friends in New Mexico. So.
0: Okay. So my guest, Helen Epstein, the author of Children of the Holocaust, Conversations with Sons and Daughters of Survivors. Thank you again. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.